Thanks, Andrew. If you do have a Bible, uh, please keep it open there. Or if you have a, a smartphone, uh, you, can, you can just Google it and keep the browser open for next week and come back next week, can't you? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you, you may have heard the story uh, of John the Apostle. from. It's not in the Bible, but he's in his senior years. This is a story from church history. Uh, and all the other apostles, those eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and teaching, they're dead at this point. They've all been killed because they've been proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and poor old John is the only one left. So you picture him, maybe he's 90 and he's old and he's, and he's frail. And he's carried into the church to say a few words. Uh, this is John, Jesus' best mate. John, the eyewitness. You know, what's he going to say? Uh, and he, he sort of musters up the energy to speak. And he says, little children, love one another. And that's it. But he says it week after week after week. You imagine that. You think, well, this is John the Apostle. Jesus taught him face to face. And that's all he's saying? Uh, annoyed over the repetition of the same old thing, someone said, Teacher, why do you always say this? To which he said, Because it's the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. Now, whether or not that's actually a true story, whether it really happened or not, we don't know for sure. But when we read John's writings, love is a thread that runs through all of it. It's especially here in 1 John. We'll see it in chapter 3. We'll see it again in chapter 4 as well as in chapter 2 this afternoon. And as, as we're looking at this sermon-like letter, which was written that the believer might have confidence in our relationship with God, that is assurance of eternal life, John has us doing some self-reflection. What is our love? What, what does your love look like? Uh, selfish, self-love? Or is it other person focused? Love is the subject. But before we kind of narrow in there, you just notice from verse 3 where that, that reading began. Uh, have a look there in your Bibles. John says, we know that we have come to know him, that is God, if we keep his commands. Uh, living God's way, keeping God's commands, it's a mark, it's a character trait of someone who has relational knowledge of God. And I hope this is stating the obvious, but keeping God's commands does not earn us relationship with him. Christians are not legalists. But living God's way is a, a character trait of the person who knows God through the saving work of Jesus. Or if we use the language of John from chapter 1, living God's way is a sign that someone has fellowship with God and is walking in the light, so to speak. And as John often does in his letter, uh, having stated something positively, he now states it again and again and again using the positive and the negative. Look at verses 4 and 5. Whoever says, I know him, I know God, but does not do what God commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. 
But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. I, like many of you, I suppose, have met many a person over the years who say, I'm a Christian. Uh, A mate from school, my old optometrist, a workmate, friends from church, and, and on and on and on the list goes. But to say that you know God and not do what God says, John the Apostle claims that is to be a liar. Strong language, isn't it? I'm pretty reluctant to call anyone a liar, even our three-year-old Fred, whose lying is prolific at the moment. But John says it plainly. And this is the third time in his letter that he's used this language. To say, I'm a Christian, but to not keep God's commands, to not obey his word, it's to lie. And as if he hasn't sort of hammered home his point quite enough already, look at verse 5 into verse 6, the second half of verse 5. He says, this is how we know we are in him, that, that close language, in fellowship with him. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's full on, isn't it? Uh, How did Jesus live? We were reflecting on this at youth group on Friday night a few weeks back. And we thought about, well, to live as Jesus did. How did Jesus treat God the Father? How did he relate to his his Father? Well, Jesus' bread and butter was to do the will of his Father. Obedience. Even when it hurt. How did Jesus treat unpopular people? He hung out with them. He loved them. How did Jesus treat us? He died for us. Living as Jesus did, that's challenging. And this, of course, is not to say that any of us are perfect or that we could ever be perfect as Jesus is. Back in chapter 1, John has said that actually to claim that you don't have sin is to be a liar, uh, and to be walking in the darkness. Part of walking in the light is being clear about our sin, honest about our sin. And in those first two verses of chapter 2, John has said that he writes that we might not sin, but if we do, when we do, we have Jesus, the righteous one, who is an atoning sacrifice For our sins, Jesus, our substitute, who dies the death that we deserve, Jesus takes on the wrath of the Father in our place. He's a propitiation for our sin. In him we're forgiven and justice is done. But not only does Jesus deal with our sin, he's our example to follow. John Newton, you know John Newton, the bloke who wrote Amazing Grace? Um, A converted slave-trading sea captain. He was a dodgy fella. Uh, He put the reality of living God's way helpfully. He said, "I, I am not what I ought to be, but I am not what I once was. 
And it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. You notice while John sort of starts quite broadly in verses 3 to 6, keeping God's commands, plural, living as Jesus did, these are a sign of relationship with God. When we get to verse 7 to 11, he's sort of narrowing in. He has something quite specific on view, a particular command. Look at verse 7 and 8. Dear friends, by the way, when we read dear friends in in 1 John, it's more literally translated uh, loved ones, dearly beloved. Loved ones, I am not writing you a new command but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So first it was commands plural. Now it's command singular, but it's not new and it is new. Are you confused? He's talking about loving one another. That becomes clear in verses 9 to 11 or clearer But how is it old, this command to love one another? Well, God has always been on about loving one another. You read in Leviticus 19 in the Old Testament, God said, love your neighbour as yourself. And that was probably one of the first instructions his original reader were given when they became Christians. One that we will never grow out of. It's old. Love one another. How's it new, though? Uh, Well, when when Jesus shows up in history, in some sense, he renews it. Uh, Perhaps the newness is that its truth is best seen in him. In fact, using John, using this newness language, you think, well, John is alluding to what Jesus said to his disciples in John 13. Do you remember that? John 13, verse 34 and 35, and if Rob's listening, this might come up on the screen. Nailed it, Rob. Well done. Where Jesus says, a new, a new, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So it's love for one another, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that says that we belong to him. And Jesus says that in the context of John's gospel just after he's washed his disciples' feet. The job in their culture that was reserved for the, low, the lowest of slaves Jesus, the greatest of all, the God-man, got down on his knees with a towel and the water and he washed his disciples' feet. He takes up that lowest role. Love one another as I have loved you, says Jesus. Uh, It's love expressed in service. And Jesus says this just before he goes to the cross where he loves us by serving us to the point of death. Love one another as I have loved you. 
It's huge, isn't it? It's massive. Do you love God's people? You know, do you love God's people? It's a character trait that says you're in Christ, that you know God, that you, you're in fellowship with him. But if you don't love God's people, don't expect any assurance that you have eternal life. That's what John's saying. David Jackman, a Bible commentator, he says, walking in the light is not only characterised by the absence of sin, but equally important by the presence of love. And can I just say, I actually really love the way we see this in our church family. Uh, youth group on a, on a Friday afternoon, we have leaders who back up after a, a week of work that they might serve our teenagers, that they might see our teens grow in their relationship with God. That's an act of servant-hearted love. We have a husband or a wife at home alone on a Friday night to free up their partner that they might go to youth in loving service of our teens. We have teenagers saying no to work and sport and parties or just a comfortable night at home alone because they're committed to encouraging their brothers and sisters in Christ. God's people will always be drawn to God's people in loving service. It's a character trait of the believer. There are those cooking meals for one another during the week. You know, someone's sick, someone's cooking a meal. There's the hand-me-down clothes. I love the way that goes on within, within our church. Our kids are riding someone else's bike, you know. It's, it's just part of being in the Christian community. People teaching Sunday kids up there with all of the preparation that goes on during the week, serving at, at creche, picking up the trailer and setting up the, the chairs. That There are those giving sacrificially, living humbler lifestyles that they might financially support the work of the gospel. An exhausted mum turning up to small group, a friend tidying up someone else's house, people being invited over for dinner or out to water skiing, the development of intergenerational relationships. I noticed someone the other week affirmed uh, one of our kids. Someone much older than him said this, uh, and it was really special for that child. They noticed something about him. There are people working hard in relationships where there has been misunderstanding and hurt. There's a bearing with one another in love, a working towards reconciliation, people quietly praying for the many and varied things going on in each other's life. And I could spend the rest of the afternoon listing off more examples. It's great that there are so many. John says this love for one another even as we do it imperfectly, it's a sign that you know God. The other side of this, you heard people say perhaps, I like Jesus but I hate his church. To this, John says in his quite blunt way, then you don't know God. 
very black and white, isn't it? You can't have God without his people. You can't have one without the other. You see this in verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. And again in verse 11. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. This is not to say that hatred towards a brother or sister in Christ cannot slip into the life of the believer for a time. But when we're starting to think that way about someone, it's serious, isn't it? It has no place. And so if it's developing, we must bring it into the light, confess it to God and keep working through it, get rid of it. John is saying little children love one another. It's a response to God's love for us. It's evidence that we know God. And it's obviously something for us all to grow in. And you remember the context of this letter is that there are some who have withdrawn from the local church community. This will come up next week, but they're saying they're right. They don't agree with the apostles' teaching. We're the ones who are in the right and the apostles are in the wrong. And they're saying, but we're the ones who know God. And this would be unsettling for any church. Who's right? Is it them or is it, is it us? And John writes to assure the believer. And I reckon this is what he does next, very specifically in verses 12 to 14. You see, in 12 to 14, he's been speaking generally and now he affirms his reader directly. Just look at verse 12 and 13. He says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. It would seem that John is addressing specific groups within the church community. Children, that's all of us. Fathers, possibly the leaders uh, the older leaders in the church, young men, possibly those leaders who are younger, though it's hard to say for sure. But you notice that being affirmed directly can be really helpful. I go on these ministers' retreats once a year and we have affirmations. It's culturally completely inappropriate. Uh, at the end of the week together, we have to write down on, on a piece of paper affirmations to affirm one another uh, things that are true uh, but things directed to the individual and a direct affirmation oh, I think it's very helpful especially when we're struggling with doubt a brother or sister in Christ who knows us saying you know Jesus paid the penalty for your sin on that cross you believe that and you know him who was from the beginning, that is Jesus, is the God-man, the eternal one. 
You know that God has equipped you by his spirit to overcome the evil one, to to say no when temptation is strong. You know God's word lives in you. John affirms, and perhaps something something that we can be doing more of with each other. John affirms, but you notice he also warns, just to finish I want to ask you what your love is really like. Because what John does next is interesting, I think. Having talked about keeping God's commands, plural, living as Jesus did, and then narrowing all of this into loving one another, love is seen in sacrificial service. Look at verse 15 to 17. John warns about a different kind of love. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. It's interesting, isn't it, that he's just plonked that there after talking about our love for for one another. What does this loving of the world look like? I'm sure lots of things, but things that are restricted to the here and now. Things that may stop us from meeting with God's people and sacrificially loving God's people. The love of money. The love of comfort. The love of success, these are the things that often get in the way of us loving as Jesus did. I'm too busy for God's people. Too tired to care for a brother or a sister. My affections are set in a different place. What is your love like? Does your love say that you're in Christ? Or is there some reorientation that is necessary? I love chapter 1 because it's clear to walk in the light is not to claim that we're without sin. But that when we're made aware of our sin, we bring it to God. Knowing we have Jesus, our substitute, the once for all sacrifice for our sins that we might be forgiven through him. And so you picture old John getting carried out on a mat or something or other. Little children love one another. It's a character trait of God's people. As he loved us, so we love one another. Why don't we turn that to prayer now? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, that commandment to love one another, an old commandment that you've been on about all the time. <laughs> that you, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger is also abounding in love. That you're a God who maintains love with thousands. And so your people are loving. That's how we're to be. 
And Lord, we're sorry for the ways that we love like the world does. We're sorry for our pride, our ambition, for the lust of the things of this world. And we pray, Lord, that you would remind us that all that we have in Jesus is so much better. Help us fix our eyes on him, the, the sacrifice, the substitute who died in our place that we might be forgiven. And Lord, we thank you for that scene as Jesus washed his disciples' feet and said, love each other like I'm loving you. As he went to the cross and died in our place, he said, go and, go and do likewise. Lord, help us love sacrificially. Show us ways to do it, given all of our gifts and personalities and opportunities. And forgive us for the times that we fail. And Lord, it's our prayer that as the world watches on, uh, that by this they would know we belong to you as we love one another. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.